Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name's Steven, this is my lovely wife Liberty. And we're a married couple with vastly different interests, trying to get our other person to engage with what we like through talking about the news in books and sports. And before we actually get into the book news, I wanted to discuss that we're doing a giveaway in August in the first week to celebrate doing podcast for two months. We're going to be giving away five vinyl stickers from Flypaper Products, and that's going to start on August 1st. We'll have a post about it, and then the person who wins will be announced on social media on the 8th of August. We're pretty excited about doing this. Um, it's kind of our first partnership and giveaway, so excited that Flypaper Products was willing to partake in this with us. And it's mostly bookish, so if you're here for the book podcast, these are probably for you. If you're here for the sports, you won't understand any of the jokes. Yeah, well, it is what it is. They do a lot of book-related things, and they've got my favorite candle that we've ever had, so... If you're interested in them, we'll have them link on that post as well. Yeah, the best part about that candle is it was found because we were going on a trip for sports and found book things. Well, I couldn't help it. We were in Chicago. We went into this little bookstore that I don't know how we even stumbled onto it. And I found this candle and obviously had to buy it and take it home. But let's get into the book news, shall we? Sounds good. The comics for... Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn are being adapted by Amazon Studios, so another comic being made into something, TV or movie. You'll figure it's Amazon or Netflix that has their paws on that. Right. Amazon had previously committed to the adaptation in 2019, but I guess they didn't make a full contract or didn't come to terms exactly until this year. And for Brian K. Vaughn, this is actually the fourth thing of his to get adapted, so he's used to his stuff turning into other things. But I feel like this is the first thing I would actually be interested in. The Paper Girls comics are about a bunch of girls in the, I believe, 80s. On Halloween morning, they're doing their paper route and discover some alien things going on. And then it goes from there. So I've read the first one. We actually got the first one on that Chicago trip. And I read it pretty much right away. I liked it. I don't know that comics are really for me, though. But I think it could make a cuter, interesting, like, TV show or movie. Yeah, as a kid, I was definitely more into comics, but I, I'm finding more and more that I deep delve into the book world that I am becoming more of a comic person. I think for me, the comics are just not enough story for me, and I felt like it ended really abruptly. So if I had had the next one, I would have started it right away, but now I'm just not interested in going all the way with the story, so... For me, comics aren't super great, but I mean, I do have comics making their way to me at this moment, so I really can't say that. <laughs> Something that started in early July that just filtered through my newsfeed now is pro-democracy books are being removed from Hong Kong libraries, and they say it's to filter out anti-terrorism and things like that. But this is in the wake of a new national security law, and so I really doubt that that's it. It sounds really dystopian and scary, but I live in the U.S. where it's also very dystopian and scary right now. Yeah, not in comparison to the same levels that China is kind of dropping on Hong Kong right now, because... Yeah. For the longest time, ever since it was an English territory, Hong Kong has kind of been a part of China, but not. It's just like this weird gray area. Right. 
I feel like it's like Washington is to us. Like, it's with us, but not quite. It's its own sort of monster. Yeah, I would almost compare it to, like, a Puerto Rico, to be completely honest. Oh, okay. um, They've always had their own internal government. Their revenue system stayed within the city of Hong Kong. It didn't go to China's main income coming in for the country. So it's kind of been independent for a long, 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 long time. Obviously owned by the Chinese government. They own where Hong Kong is, but at the same time... It's just been this really vast gray area. Well, and a lot of weird stuff is going on with Hong Kong right now. So this is just something you don't want to see. You don't want censorship really to be happening in your libraries because that's where you get your information. So that's a little scary. Right. And then Mark Dawson, he is an author who made it into the top 10 for his books and then it was realized that he had purchased copies of his own book to try to push up the sales to make it into the top 10 and he was caught so he's been removed he's kind of like doing the steroids of uh book world type things i I mean he's cheating so he was caught by people who apparently check these sort of things in the uk i don't even really know what his book is so that tells you how much we know about him but he had a book that was doing well but i guess he didn't think it was doing well enough so he just went out and bought more copies so that making it onto this list would make people want to buy his book and up his sales even more it just didn't work out for him puts him in the best selling category i would imagine instead of just hey i'm an author yeah so i don't know what that means for his work in the future but for now he's just been stripped of his bestseller for that book a new book is going to be coming out in august that is said to explain why prince harry and Meghan have taken a step back from royal life but the thing is with that book that's going to be coming out it doesn't have any information directly from the family so like from prince harry or from megan or from other family around who know what's going on so they weren't even like interviewed to bring the information up to make the book no so i don't know how they got any information i don't know how accurate it's going to be but so it's going to be a fiction book then i mean i don't know i can't imagine that they have all the facts And it's coming out on August 11th. The book says basically that there's family strife and that's the reason they took a step back. But I feel like everyone already knew that without this book coming out to say that. So I don't know what new information that can bring to the table. I mean, I'm not usually someone interested in what's happening with royalty, so this isn't interesting to me anyway. But I know when they got married and they had a kid, everyone was very interested, especially on this side of the pond. So if that's something that someone wants, it'll be out on August 11th. And the Library of Congress usually has a fall book festival. And this was supposed to be the 20th annual National Book Festival for them. But they had to move it online this year because of everything going on. That makes sense. And so they're still going to do a three-day event. It's going to run from September 25th to the 27th. And it's going to feature 120 authors with on-demand videos, live author chats, discussions about various pieces of work. So... I feel like you're not going to be missing out on too much with it being online versus in the real world. It's just the life of COVID now. It's going to be kind of similar, I guess, to what they're doing this weekend with Comic-Con, you know, being completely digitally streamed. Mm -hmm. 
that, that's a weird thing for me, I guess, coming from San Diego and having gone to all those as a child, it's just kind of strange to see it all over the internet, but I guess it makes sense for everyone's safety and sake, yeah. Yeah, life in the time of corona. Right. And that kind of leads into the next thing, which is a library in the Wilkes-Barre area. I hope I said that correctly is going to be doing a huge book sale this weekend, but because of COVID, they're doing it like a drive-through. So they bagged up a bunch of books and each set is sold at a certain price. And then you just drive through, pick up a bag and pay your money, get a bunch of books. So is it like a mystery bag or do you actually get to pick the books you want put in the bag or? They weren't clear. They just said they bagged up the books. So I'm assuming they're either going to be doing this bag is mystery or this bag is YA or something Mm -hmm. and you pay a certain amount or it's just a bunch of different things in each bag and you get what you get. Well, I think might end up happening if that's going to be the case. It was like if you had a group of friends or something like that, I would partner up with the group of friends. Everybody buy a random bag and then just trade books, like right, trading yeah. cards. I feel like that would be a good option if that's the way they're going to do it. Even if it's genres that you like and you get to pick which genre, that would be a good idea. Yeah, gives you more options. But the book sale usually brings in a lot of money and they're thinking it's going to be like a tenth of that that they're going to make this year. So Corona's not doing anything good for our libraries at the moment. Yeah, we normally take place in trying to buy books whenever we see a library sale up. So, you know, we know that the struggle could be a little more complicated. Yeah, and it's going to be one of those things where you still get a really good price per book, but I don't know that it's going to be what they really wanted right. for their sale. So, And I would imagine they're not taking returns. I guess you could donate the books back to the library. Well, but they were trying to get rid of it in the first place. So. But it still would help out the fundraising side of it. Yeah, but it's just, this is a really hard time for your libraries. And I think being able to use them still digitally is going to help. I just don't know that they're going to be able to recover from this not making as much money as normal. And the last piece of book news that I have is the tribute book for Satoru Iwata. I probably said that wrong. The president and CEO of Nintendo who died in 2015 is going to be translated into English for a 2021 spring release. They haven't said when in spring, but just spring of next year. Yeah. And it's going to be called Ask Iwata. And it's translated from Iwata's son which was published in Japan last year. So if you're a big Nintendo fan, there's probably a book you want to read if you can get your hands on it. As a big Nintendo fan, I might actually pick that book up. Sounds interesting. So is it like a memoir about him or...? Yeah, it's about him and it's sort of about his life and what he's done. That sounds interesting. Hopefully that cat meow is not in here. It probably will be. She she was causing chaos. But that's really all the book news I have. It's not quite as exciting as the book news that I had last week, but that's just the way it goes sometimes. Well, you know, unlike sports, because sports are firing up like crazy, I can understand how that could be the case. Like, yeah. obviously authors are staying home, so I would hope that in the near future we get a flux of books. Well, I think it's more likely than not you're going to have more book events happening once all of this is over, but no one's willing to meet an author when all of this is happening. Well, especially considering with those meeting author events, you got to understand that like they're seeing 50 to hundreds of people in seconds, you know, and the last thing you want to do is just mix all that 
terms of. Yeah. But I do have a tag that I want to do, and it's short and sweet, so it shouldn't take that long, but it comes from the reading rush, and I didn't take part in the reading rush just because I didn't enjoy any of the prompts that they came out with this year. So they did, for one of their daily events that you're supposed to take part in, the race to read tag. So it's just a short seven question tag, and they picked up all of their prompts from basically running a race. Mm. Because during the reading rush, you're racing to read your books. Usually speaking, that sounds like that would make sense. So the first prompt is the warm up. What is a book that stretches your mind? For me, because I just read this book, I picked it. It's Hank Green's A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. And it's just because basically all of Hank's books have so much going on that you have to be focused while you're reading or it will take you forever. And it's just, it's such a layered story and so many good thoughts and ideas about how to be a better person in this digital age on top of the actual first contact with aliens story. So for his books, I said it takes work to read them versus his brother's books, which you can just breeze through because they're easy to read. Not saying one is better than the other, but for Hank's books, you definitely have to stretch your mind. Makes you think. It's a thinking book. Yeah. And the second prompt is the starting line. What is a book that you started but never finished? And I don't have a ton of those because I usually push myself to finish books, which is probably not healthy, but I do it. And I picked Absolutely True Lies by Rachel Stuhler. And I had started to read this in 2017, I think, and then had to put it down because it was just so bad. And it featured animal neglect, and I'm just not down for that. Having a cat, I don't want to read about how someone's mistreating their cat, so mm -hmm. I wasn't really there for it. But the book's about an entertainment writer who's not doing so hot, and she loses her job but stumbles into a gig where she's writing about a teenage pop star's memoir and what's going on with their squeaky clean image, but they're not really squeaky clean and that sort of thing. But I only made it a chapter or two in before I gave up because she had just lost her job and then curled up in bed for days and neglected her cat. And I wasn't down for that. Yeah, that would be a hard pass for me as well. There's a lot I can put up with books. Animal neglect is not one of them. And the third prompt is Sprint, a book that you read really quickly. And for me, the last one or ones I can remember reading very fast are the Shadow and Bone Trilogy by Lee Bardugo. I think for each of these books I read one book in one day and for me that's not really common anymore like it was when I was a kid so for me it just feels like that was really quick. I think I finished the whole series in like a week while reading other things in between these books. Yeah a book in one day would be absolutely crazy in my mind. <laughs> Yeah. As someone who used to go to midnight releases for Harry Potter and I would read 600, 700, 800 page books in a day, it doesn't feel that fast. But now that I'm an adult and I don't really have that kind of time to sit around and read all day, right. I think that was pretty quick for me. And this is the first series by Leigh Bardugo. It's her jumping off point for my favorite book of hers, Six of Crows. But this happens in the same world just before that stuff happens. And it's a fantasy series. It's very of its time, so I don't know how well it would be received now, but it does sort of open up that whole world that everyone loves. Prompt number four is Hurdles, a book that had its ups and downs. 
a lot of people are taking this to be like how the story structure goes ups and downs but all books have that otherwise you don't have a story for me I take the prompt more as you thought it had its high and low points for you, that you liked it a lot at this point but didn't in others. And for me, that's gotta be The Leaving Season by Kat Jordan. It was one of those library books I picked up, so I don't mind given how much I spent on it, but basically a girl and her boyfriend are together at the beginning of the novel, but he goes away to work on like a mission trip after he graduates and she's still in high school. And basically he disappears and everyone sees that a bunch of damage was done, a lot of fighting, and so they don't know if he died in that little conflict or what. And she connects with his best friend who's like this troublemaker guy who still stays there after everything's over. And like I liked how she had to deal with like her conflicting emotions given that she's starting to like this bad boy that she's not supposed to like, that's like her boyfriend's best friend, but her boyfriend might be dead. And so the premise itself sounds like it has a bunch of ups and downs, that alone. And it just seems like they're trying to make her out as like this really bad person for feeling this way. I'm not big on that. You're gonna feel what you're gonna feel. And then the boyfriend ends up coming back and then she feels really guilty and then they both treat her like crap, which I'm not down for. So it had its ups and downs for me. Sounds like a little bit of a roller coaster of a story where it's just like, I like this little bit here, but this was not so great. And then ah, we're back going down the fun part. They also have a dog, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That'll suck on it. Yeah. But it also sounds like a CW show. Like there are parts (laughs) that are good, but parts that just really suck. Yeah, and a lot of kissing, right? Because that's usually what comes in contact with CW. Prompt number five is The Finish Line, a book that you were proud to finish, and I chose House of Earth and Blood by Sarah J. Mass. It's an adult fantasy novel, and it's got basically any type of mythological creature you can think of, and this girl has to basically solve her best friend's murder, and it goes from there. And I say that I'm happy I finished it just because it's such a long book. It's almost a thousand pages. And for me, the longest book I had read prior to that was 900 pages, and it was also a Sarah J. Mass book. So all the longest books I've read are Sarah J. Mass. But I really enjoyed it. If you like mystery, you're going to like it. If you like all these sort of mythological creatures, angels and demons and vampires and werewolves, you'll like it. Also Faye, because she always writes about Faye. Prompt number six, gold medal, the best book that you read during a readathon. I don't do a lot of readathons. I think the magical readathon is the only one I've completed this year. And I normally don't get involved in readathons just because I don't like being told what to read. That's just me. Like to do it on your own terms. Yeah. And I think with the magical readathon, there's more freedom in it. So that's why I did it this year. I've also done it other years, but I've never completed it. But for this one, I think City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty has to be the best book I've read for a readathon. And I've talked about it relentlessly on this podcast. It's the first book in the Dave Bod trilogy about a con woman in 18th century Cairo who accidentally summons a warrior djinn and then things devolve or evolve from there and it's a really good series. I still stand by the whole series. I think it's great. It just finished in June 
And the last prompt is going to be the participation ribbon, an underrated book that you wish got more attention. And I went with Sky in the Deep by Adrian Young. It's about Vikings and two different Viking clans who fight and have a lot of conflict. And basically during one of these conflicts, this girl sees her brother in the other clan fighting. Ah. And this kid's been missing for years, and so that's apparently where he's been. And yeah. then the story goes from there. I don't know if it's just because I have a penchant for Vikings or if it's just a really good story that's not getting enough appreciation. Well, you've always been attached to Viking-related stuff, so I'm really not too shocked that you enjoyed that. Well, and Adrian Young is an author I really enjoy, and I never feel like she gets the love she deserves. Gotcha. I was going to say originally when you said participation trophy, that's the one I win. When it comes to you read books, a book. I'm very proud. Yep. Get my, I want my ribbon. I'll go buy you one. Okay. But that's all there is for that tag. It was short and sweet. It's a little shorter than the one that you had last week as well. Yeah. Yeah. But let's get into what you've been reading. You finished Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. Um, definitely a lot better than the second book. We'll start by saying that already. Definitely becoming one of my favorites, if not my favorite, for the whole series. But again, I have only gone three books in, so I can't really judge yet. I thoroughly enjoyed the character development that went on in this book. Like seeing Hermione become a little bit more of a tough shell when she slaps Malfoy in the face for making comments about Hagrid or mocking Hagrid, really. Mm -hmm. And she, even when she's extremely stressed and extended, she's still going out of her way to try to look things up for Hagrid related to Buckbeak's defense. And she's still managing to get to all of her classes. So, like, I grew to really like her character this book. I almost said season. That would have made sense. <laughs> and I feel like it has a lot to do with you're kind of seeing her develop and grow more into, like, kind of an adult, I guess is the best way to describe it. She's taking mm -hmm. more responsibility for a lot of things. And, like, not saying that she wasn't responsible for things in the first two books. Like, clearly she was. But the growth was there. It was a lot more present in the She's book. She's taking on a lot more than she has before. Right. And, you know, you see her stand up for Harry in the divination class. Which, she was like, oh gosh, a grim again? Like, mm -hmm. type of like, oh my god, really? And she realizes that, like, she's able to make more decisions for herself and not just be guided by the fact that, like, I want to learn everything. And mm -hmm. I, th I thought that was really important for her as well to realize especially like when it came to like the muggle studies class and she's like i'm a muggle why do i need muggle studies right right i really enjoyed the development of her character in the book ron on the other hand i would say i almost like a downward spin a little bit for me in this book just a little bit and it came to me more along the lines like with the scabbers situation where he was just being a little punk think about how you would react right about your pet. Right. But I'm saying, like, overall, now that everything's kind of come down into play, like, everything came out through the book at the end. It's just like, dude, you're so stupid to not even realize what was going on right in front of you. How would he know? He How? Wouldn't. He wouldn't. And that's the thing. That doesn't make him yeah. stupid. It just seemed like he was oblivious. I guess oblivious is the right word for that. I mean, Percy didn't know either, and he had the route before him. True. It was a hand-me-down. And then obviously Harry as a character went kind of through a roller coaster in this book of just the way he was as a character. Like he was, he showed his stubbornness a lot in this book too. Like with the scene where he's learning his Patronus with the bogger 
and Lupin, and it's just like, dude, you suck at this. Just realize you're like you're you're getting better, but barely. And then the second class that he takes, with, well, like second lesson he's getting from Lupin, didn't progress any better. So it's like you plateaued. Don't hate yourself for that. Like it's magic that's so complicated. And I don't know. It didn't make me hate him as a character, obviously, because he's the main character. I'm supposed to hate him, but I got a little distaste. If you feel that now, just wait till book five. Yeah. But I think it's not necessarily him being stubborn. I think it's a side of Harry that we haven't really seen before, which is he's afraid right. and he wants something to protect himself. Right. And also you have the other side of it where the more he does this practice with Lupin, the more he's getting to find out about his parents and how his parents died and unlocking that part of his brain. And as much as it's horrific and hard to listen to or see or whatever, he also wants to know. Right. Because because he's lived without his parents pretty much his whole life. And very few memories of them at all, even if they are just the bad memories, necessarily. Well, I mean, he was one when they died. Technically, he doesn't have any real fully-fledged, cemented memories about them. And this is the only way he can get them. Yeah. And then scenes that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the conversation with Oliver Wood when he comes back after Christmas break and he finds out that Harry got a fireball. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I'll talk sense into McGonagall. I'll <laughs> talk her into it. She wants to win just as bad as we do, you know? I just, I'm like, clearly you weren't there for the original conversation. He, otherwise you'd realize that you're wrong. He is such a teenage boy who just loves his sports. And like, yeah. I love Oliver Wood. And I hate that the movies don't show him as much as I would like. No. I don't think the books show him as much as I would like. So like, <laughs> the movies obviously don't show him enough. But that brings up a point that I always forget about until this book and it's so we know that Percy is head boy in his third year which makes him a seventh in Harry's third year which makes him a seventh year he's in Gryffindor you have Oliver Wood whose last year is during Harry's third year which makes him a seventh year and he's a Gryffindor Percy Weasley and Oliver Wood have lived in the same dorm for seven years how did they not kill each other Right, right. I wouldn't be surprised. If there were some very heated arguments over the years. Well, I also have this weird headcanon where, like, Percy is by and, like, dated Oliver Wood before the book started. Oh, gosh. But, like, that's a whole different thing. Hey, there's nothing to suggest I'm wrong. Yeah. It's just a headcanon. <laughs> Um, and then also seeing like Ron's excitement over the firebolt when like he gets it back and he's just like, can I, can I ride it? Can I fly it? Can we go da, da, like right now? Let's go do this thing. You know, the thing. Let's get to it. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And like, he's so protective over it. Like, oh, I'll carry it up to our, our room. And like, he's just over the top excited about like, just touching, being in the same room mm -hmm. as the firebolt. He's like, oh my God, like fangirling almost over it. Yeah. I enjoyed that that set of scenes with Ron because it was just so silly. Mm -hmm. And then you have the scene where Madame Hooch also kind of fangirls over it. Like, yeah, yeah. Here, let me take it for a spin just to make sure one last time that it's not cursed, like, type of thing. And they're just like, okay, sure. Everyone loves this room. Yeah. And then Oliver was like, um, Madame Hooch, can we get that back? We kind of need to practice. <laughs> type of a conversation, which was also pretty entertaining. And it seems like for, like, honestly, chapter 12 and 13 was so centered around just the... the broom itself <laughs> like even in the match you know you have lee jordan's commentary for like 90 percent of the matches about the broom itself <laughs> it can turn at this and it can do this and it can do that and harry writing it is probably one of the greatest seekers in the world that could be writing it right at the moment type of like crap and it's just like wow okay calm down lee jordan yeah like it's exciting but is it that exciting 
I really um, like Lee Jordan when he's commentating. And then you kind of start to see like a budding crush that Harry has on Cho Chang. Mm-hmm. Glad I got her name right because I've been practicing that one because I didn't want to mess that up. I, you know, in my notes I had it backwards originally. I don't know why I did last name and what? first name. I don't know. Okay. But he's like, I've got this weird feeling in my stomach. And I'm like, yeah, those are butterflies, you dork. <laughs> you like her. He's uh, so oblivious sometimes, even to his own feelings. He's going after the older lady, too, a whole year older than him. Before, oh, man. Year, like, mm-hmm. go Harry. Jeez, like, confidence much? But that was that was a funny scene for me. Obviously, you have Malfoy and his bands of thugs dressing up as Dementors to come onto the pitch. And then Harry's like, Patel, Patronus is like, it didn't even affect me. And I'm like, because they weren't Dementors, stupid. What's really funny about that is like, what did they think would happen when they got onto a pitch? Like, it actually affects Harry. Like, something actually happens whenever he's around a Dementor. You're just two kids in trench coat. What the heck? Three kids. You had, um, well, there there were supposedly three of them, right? A total of three, right? You had, Mm -hmm. uh, what's his name? The captain of Slytherin. Marcus Flint. Flint, and then you had Goyle and himself. Yeah. Okay, so it's three kids in a trench coat. Yeah, yeah. It was two That's in one standard. trench coat, and then there's supposedly two Dementors is what they were trying to argue it yep. as. But. And then you find out at the end of Chapter 13, the sad news, it kind of like brings the high to the low very quickly that Buckbeak loses his case, and he's got one appeal option left the day of his execution, and possible execution, I guess, at that point. Yeah. And then moving on, 14 was kind of... More plot building more than anything. You see them in Hogsmeade. Harry sneaks back out again. Uh, meets up with Ron this time. Hermione is like, no, I'm going to study for tests. Does her own thing. And they're like, oh, let's go up to the Shrieking Shack. And they start making their way there. And then again, Malfoy and his goons, Crab and Goyle, show up. And Harry is underneath the invisibility cloak. So he starts antagonizing them by, like, throwing mud and rocks and crap like that at them. I mean, I would say they antagonized Ron first, and that's why that brought out that response in Harry, but yeah. And then it ends up, it was, like, his head or something like that that ends up sliding out. And then, yeah. like, Malfoy's like, hey. Because <laughs> Snape says, what was your head doing in Hogsmeade? Yeah. None of you is allowed in Hogsmeade or something right. like that. Right. Um, and then you have, you know, him Basically giving, well, Snape giving Harry hell for the last half of the chapter, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And you have Lupin come to the rescue and go, well, that's probably just a gag gag piece of paper to play pranks on teachers, you know, like playing it off. That's really funny when it comes to the other books and knowing Lupin like you do, because, like, of course that's his response. Yeah. Of course his first thing is to cover for Harry. But you gotta understand Lupin was part of the creating of the map, so it's, like, not that shocking. Well, I also mean just because he was in a group of friends that liked to cause a bunch of heck. So, of course, his first response is to protect a potter at all costs. Right. In chapter 15, you start to see Hermione and Ron make up, which was kind of nice because, honestly, I was getting bored of just Ron and Harry a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, Hermione brings a little bit of a level of, another level of intelligence to the conversation. <laughs> so, just like, I miss that. Obviously, this is meant for, like, middle grade readers. Yeah. So, like, requiring the intelligence probably isn't required for most children that are reading this book. But as an adult, I'm like, come on, let's get the intellectual level rolling well, a little bit. Well, throughout the series, you see the them kind of have fights within the group so you often have people who's like one person's over here and two people over here and it makes sense for like a friend group for this sort of fight to happen right which i'm glad that they ended up working everything out obviously it helps the story move along a little bit too as well and um, this is all when hermione's really just having that breakdown like she's yeah. just falling apart because she's, she's doing taking too many, too many classes doing too much homework studying for too many tests 
Just too many. Too many is like the definition of what was going on for her. Mm-hmm. She threw the fit in divination class after missing the charms class. She was studying and slept through it. And then you obviously have the Slytherin versus Gryffindor Quidditch final as well going on in that uh, chapter. You see how foul and dirty Slytherin is playing. They literally are committing fouls all over the pitch. And they have to beat him by, what was it, uh, 200 points? So they had to be Something like that. They had to be 50 points up on Slytherin before Harry captured the Golden Snitch. Obviously you have the same action scenes that you get predominantly in most of the Quidditch matches and then Harry catches the snitch and saves the day. Seems yep. like at a certain point it gets a little repetitive with the Quidditch matches and I'm, I don't know if they continue in later books. But... I'm surprised you say that given the fact that you are a sports guy. Like this is a sport. I w- what are you doing? But it's just written almost the same. Like the the climax is the same and the end is the same and it's just... There's always something to get you really excited about what's going on, and then I guess that's the way a story's told, and then you just get flat nothing, you know, usually at the end of it. So, like, if you go back to the previous book, Harry has the broken bones, and then Lockhart screws him up, and it's just like, after the, you know, exciting part of it. I mean, I can understand your perspective. It's just, I'm surprised by it. I, like, I enjoy the scenes, obviously, as a sports guy, but at the same time, it just, it, it seemed like it was getting a little repetitive, I guess. But um, I would argue baseball is really repetitive, but let's go on. <laughs> Anyways, the, in the next chapter, we're looking at like the final tests. Hermione is still stressing out beyond belief, studying as much as possible. But at least she's not missing courses anymore or anything yeah. like that. So she's back on the back on point. You know, mm-hmm. now that she's dropped divination as a course, and she ends up dropping Muggle studies, not even trying to take the tests. Like she's just like, I'm gonna I'd rather not deal with all that crap. Pretty sure she took the test and then dropped it at the end of the year, but okay. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, actually, I think you're right in that instance on that one. I'll um, find out when I reread it. Yeah. The weird part during the final test, obviously, Harry is sitting down with Trelawney, and her voice gets all deep, dark, and, like, demonic, mm-hmm. like, is the way I would picture it, I guess, based on the descriptions. And she basically states that, in her prediction, that the Dark Lord's servant will rejoin him tonight, which, it's like, wow, okay, so we were doing tests, and then all of a sudden, plot, like, ba-boom, mic drop, you yeah. know, like, it just came down. And, like, Harry's like, this makes no sense. This lady's a loon and then he realizes that she doesn't remember anything that she just said and he's like oh maybe that was real (laughs) you start to see the gears kind of turn in his head for that as well you see that buckbeak loses his appeal which is kind of sad you know buckbeak's gonna get executed at sundown which is absolutely heartbreaking and harry and hermione and ron go down to kind of console hagrid as they can try to make him feel better about the fact that he's gonna lose buckbeak um And in the process of being down there, they find Scabbers, who they thought was dead. Yep. I'm sorry, if I was Hermione, I would have hit Ron for being <laughs> such a punk about all that crap. Like, don't get me wrong, you thought my cat ate your rat, but at the same time, your rat was dying, okay? Like, get over it. It was mm-hmm. going to die. And in the process of finding Scabbers, they hear the execution party coming down to Hagrid. So they're like, stuff him away, get underneath the cloak, get out of the house, through the back door. And then as they're walking away, they hear a thud of an axe and they presume that that's the end of Buckbeak. Poor Buckbeak. In the process of walking back to the castle, Scabbers is being little some expletives. Yeah, wiggle worm. That's not a bad bad definition. And he gets out because Crookshanks is 
chilling in the forest, like the edge of the forest, basically. And out of the blue, in the process of it, a black dog comes running out of the forest, aka Sirius Black. Spoilers. You don't know that at that point? Yeah. And attacks Ron and Harry, like just full-on bumps the crap out of both of them, and drags... Ron into this hole underneath the Whomping Willow, which is interesting because it's like, how did nobody ever see it before? But I guess, like, it's the Whomping Willow, you don't get close enough to it. Right. So that leaves Harry and uh, Hermione and Crookshanks standing out there under the Whomping Willow. They're both trying to try to dodge the tree branches as best they can and realize that's not working. So Crookshanks runs over and bops a knot on the tree and <laughs> the tree is just like, what? Frozen. Yeah. It's like almost it stops time just for the tree itself, which is kind of weird. Yeah, it's more like freeze tag. Freeze tag, like you're it. <laughs> you're frozen now. And so they crawl down in the hole and like obviously Harry knew that the tunnel was there because he had the map. He just didn't know how to get to it because he was told that it's just not safe. I think he just saw a pathway on the map. Like, that leads off the map somewhere, but that was probably it. And they end up in the Shrieking Shack, working their way upstairs, and they find out that Ron's got a broken leg, and as they come in through the door, Sirius Black disarms them. And then they play, like, two children jumping on the dad's back, like monkeys (laughs) on the back type fight to get the wand back to disarm Sirius. And, like, that whole scene just, there's so much going on in such a short time. And I'm glad they spread it amongst multiple chapters, because if they hadn't, I would have rioted. Yeah. Obviously, then you have Lupin come in and start, like, talking sense into everybody. Like, he's the cool head out of the bunch, even though he's a werewolf, which is, like, a weird plot twist. I mean... Again, you don't know that he's a werewolf necessarily at that point, either. I would say that's not really a plot twist, but it shouldn't be a surprise that someone is calm. But Lupin comes in and starts kind of talking sense into everybody. And then the plot starts to kind of break down into where they're trying to get the discussion going about basically Ron's rat, Scabbers, Mm -hmm. and who he actually is. He's Peter Pettigrew. And then at a certain point you have Snape appear and pull both Sirius and Lupin at one point, basically. Yeah. And... Just causing problems. Yeah, well, Snape, what do you expect? Yeah. And then my f- my favorite part is, like, I feel like ev- both Ron, Hermione, and Harry were, like, so fed up with Snape for the entire year <laughs> that when they all used Expelliarmus all at the same time, knocking the wand out of his hands and unconscious, like, completely just knocked him out. Like, oh, it was three spells at once. Yeah. And then everything starts to kind of play out. You have Pettigrew wallowing like a little sissy, trying to persuade people to, like, protect him from Sirius and Lupin and all this stuff. And it's like, dude, you're a monster. Yeah. Like, I'm going to protect you. Well, and he's also really weak, and I think that shows at that point because it's him always having to hide behind someone stronger and more powerful than him. And that's sort of his whole character. Kind of makes sense, uh, him being a rat and all that stuff in that instance, too, instead of, like, a stag or a a wolf or a dog. Yeah. He's a rat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like, come on. And so they start coming back, and then everything goes to hell because... It wouldn't be a Harry Potter book if it didn't. Yeah. Um, Scabbers escapes, and you have Harry kind of running after Sirius Black into the forest because the Dementors start showing up, and he goes to try to save Sirius, and more or less is incapable, as we find out. And he passes out. Yeah, yeah and ends up passing out, and then he faintly sees somebody who he thinks is his dad saving him with. Patronus and they both kind of wake up. Well, he wakes up, Hermione wakes up. I always forget Hermione ends up following him technically in the book, right? Versus the 
because she was also there, right? He was she was trying to he was trying to protect mm-hmm. her with the Patronus, and so the three of them, Ron and Harry and Hermione, are all in the sick bay again, you know, in the hospital wing, and. Snape is basically they're like, yeah, I did all these brave, cool things, blah, 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 blah. I brought him back and now, 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 now. Not da, only da. that, but he's also lying about what happened. Yeah. To try to... Make it sound like he was that much better. Uh, I don't know. It's just, he's being very Slytherin about it, trying to get <laughs> as much out of it as he can, being very ambitious. Yeah, they're like giving him an Order of Merlin second class and like all this stuff. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, you did, you really got knocked out by three teenagers, okay? Like, yeah. let's call it what it is. You brought back unconscious people, like, man, that must have been tough. Not even people you've made unconscious. They were unconscious when, when you, you found got them. to them. Yeah. And so you end up getting a scene where Dumbledore is like, I believe the kids, and I, like, I, I can't deny Snape at the same time because he's an adult. Like, he's playing it, like, very political at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he asks for everybody to leave, and, like, Hermione and Harry are just like, Boom! All the stories at once. Like, everybody's talking over each other. And and he's like, listen, we don't have that kind of time. Here's this cool thing that you've been using this entire time, Hermione. You know how to use it. It's a time turner. Is that right? Yeah, it's a time turner. Yeah. Glad I got that one right, too. Been practicing that word. Mm. Uh, Set of words, I should say. And so they go back in time to try to save multiple lives, as Dumbledore has said. He's like, you can save multiple lives. And so the first one, obviously, that they're going to end up saving based on the time rotation is going to be Buckbeak. So they save Buckbeak by being very stealthy in the forest and waiting. They, like, the scene that I enjoyed with that, I guess, was Harry trying to pull Buckbeak by himself. Yeah. Who's normally guided by Hagrid everywhere he goes, by a little teenage boy dragging him to the forest. So I thought that was kind of a funny scene. It was, yeah. And then they're basically taking Buckbeak around everywhere with them to try to figure out how they can, you know, save everybody else in this instance. They end up flying up with Buckbeak and rescuing Sirius Black from the dungeon, more or less. They put him in, like, no, jail cell. Flitwick's office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're also missing the part where they're down by the lake and being attacked by the Dementors. True, yeah. So I, I don't know why I bypassed that. I was going to the exciting things like rescuing somebody. But he also, I guess, in turn is the reason Harry ends up figuring out how to make his Patronus work properly and saves himself, Hermione, and Sirius Black from the kiss. Yeah. Which would have killed them, so... That's exciting. It would have removed their souls. It wouldn't have killed them, but yeah. You'd rather be dead. Yeah, probably. Is the the moral of the story, I guess. Yeah. And then they rescue Sirius from his jail cell slash Flitwick's office and then let him fly off with Buckbeak. So the two are saved and they're gone on their way back to freedom. Two criminals on the run. Yeah. (laughs) Criminals. Put in well, no one gets a fair trial in the wizarding world, as you will discover. Everyone's just presumed guilty for some reason. Though to be fair, Buckbeak had more of a trial than Sirius did. Yeah, and they get back like just in the like the hair on the chin time, Nick to, time get, yeah. to get back in there. And Dumbledore's like, "You must have done it." And he's like, "Wait, okay, I don't hear you guys anymore. Now you can go back in." Yeah, yeah. 
Like, mastering that, I feel like, would have been so stressful for Hermione, like, at her age. But I guess as smart as she is, she knew how to kind of avoid everything. Well, and she's been using the time-turner all year, oh, yeah. so yeah. she knows how that works. She's uh, an expert on the subject at that yeah. point. I think one of my favorite things that happens in the hospital wing is there's this giant boulder of chocolate that <laughs> Madame Pomfrey chips off to feed everybody so that they can recover from the Dementors. Right. I just, I want to see that. Why wasn't that in the movie? Well, again, we'll discuss the movie next week. Next week. Yeah. But I, I just don't, like, I know everybody's like, they, they were complaining about how much chocolate they had to eat. I don't have a problem with that. Bring on the chocolate. Yeah, no. That's the cure. I will eat a boulder size of chocolate. Yeah. Well, and the Dementors are supposed to represent depression yeah. and how it sucks away every good thing. And if the cure is chocolate for depression, I'll do it. Bring it on. What kind of chocolate do I need to eat? Chocolate ice cream? Dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate, I don't have a problem with it. Technically white chocolate's not chocolate, but that's a different story. Yeah, for another day. And then, honestly, one of the coolest scenes, I think, is the very end where they're on the train back. And you see this little owl trying He's to so figure, cute. Trying to uh, catch up with the train. And in the note, it ends up giving the owl to Ron. And Ron's like, you mean it? Even he though finally he's small, has he's like, an owl. He's like, oh, it's fine. mine. Yeah. And he tells Crookshanks off when he finds out that it's his owl. He's like, no. <laughs> Well, first he has the owl sniffed by Crookshanks. Like, do you think it's an owl? Is this okay? Yeah. So, I mean, that shows that he can be friends with Crookshanks. Yeah, after all the hell they went through during the year. Turns out Crookshanks was right about him. Well, that's just another moral of the story that cats are always right, you know. Uh, At least a good judge of character. I agree with that. Yeah. I think this is probably my favorite book, or at least my top two books, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think for me, a lot of my enjoyment comes from A, there's no Voldemort in this one, but B, you sort of discover more about Harry's family and Harry's family's friends and this whole backstory with the Marauders, and it's just adding a whole nother depth to the Wizarding World. I could go for a book about just the Marauders. Um, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have agreed with you, but now I'm like, no, don't, don't go near my boys. Stay away from them. <laughs> you don't need to put anything else out, thanks. <laughs> well, we've seen what she's done with other wizarding stories. I don't need her input anymore, thanks. So you'd be okay if like another author was able to write it for her? Well, there's something about her writing that is just so intricate and so detailed and so thought out. I mean, you've got people who are linguists who sort of dissect all of her different made-up words that she's come up with for the story. So I don't think anyone could do it the way that she does it. I just definitely don't want her to do it. Gotcha. So at this point, I'm okay with no Marauders books, no Marauders TV show or movie. I would have disagreed with that 10 years ago, but that's how I feel now. So what you're saying is in 10 years, I'll also disagree with the needing of those things. Probably. Okay. But next week, we're going to be talking about the book-to-movie adaptation. I talked about it a little bit, but we'll talk about it more next week. Having seen the movie before, I'm concerned, but at the same time, I'm excited to talk about it. Well, there's there's going to be a lot to talk about. But this past week, I read A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green, and I really enjoyed it. I gave it 4.25 stars. I wanted it to be better than it was, but that's not to say it isn't good. Okay. Like, it's not an all-time favorite, but it's up there. It's the second book in the Carl's series. Originally, it was 
an absolutely remarkable thing series, but now it's called The Carls. It's such a weird choice for a series name. Well, it's because the alien race gets called Carl. Right. But it's first contact with aliens, but there's the second half of that story, and it dives more deeply into humanity and how humans interact and relate, and a lot of it reminded me of stuff happening in the pandemic right now. So that was kind of horrifying, given the fact that he started this book before the pandemic did. Right. And so in the book, there are scenes where there's like no one on the street because everyone's stuck at home. But for this, it's because there's a new VR platform that people are like not stepping away from. Like they don't want to go anywhere. They don't want to do anything. They just want to be in this VR world. But if you sort of relate it to the pandemic when there was no one on the street and everyone was stuck at home, it's kind of scary. Yeah. And absolutely horrifying. It sort of brings up questions of addiction and isolation and questions about communities and communication. So, like I said, his books require a lot of your brain power while you're reading them. And it's definitely hard to explain beyond the fact that it's sort of about humanity, but it's also first contact with aliens. Right. It would almost be like comparison with the pandemic and then like when Animal Crossings blew up, everybody was so attached to that stupid game. Like, there are people that even I worked with who were like attached to whatever video game they were already attached to, who literally sat down to play the Animal Crossing game just because of the hype. Yeah. Well, in this, you actually sort of, you get your own sort of high from doing this VR thing. And I don't know, I think Hank Green understands humanity and online presence a lot more than a lot of other people I've seen. Yeah. So it's very thoughtfully done and it's very well done. It's one of those things you're going to have to read it for yourself to find out exactly what I'm talking about because it's hard to explain. Yeah, I'm sure at some point our listeners will recommend that as a set of books that I read, I'm sure. And the second book I read, because I only got to two books this week, was The Damned by Renee Audier. It's the second book in the Beautifuls series. And I rated that 3.75 stars. It's the same enjoyment level as what I had when I read the first book. So I have to say the two sort of meet as far as how well they're done but this one sort of expands on the world it's a fantasy novel set in 19th century new orleans that's about vampires and werewolves and fae and that sort of thing and it went from being this tiny scope of this group in new orleans to getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't know if I necessarily enjoyed that as much as I was supposed to. I think I enjoyed the setting so much in the first book that it's hard for me to go outside that and enjoy it as much. And, you know, there was this cliffhanger at the end of the first book, but I don't think she cashed in on it as much as she should have in the second one to make it worthwhile. Gotcha. But I still really enjoyed it. I do have this problem with this series where it reminds me so much of a TV show, and I'm not going to say the TV show, but if you've seen it, you know it. And it's just hard to decouple those two things and separate them because they are so similar. 
But I'm glad vampires are making a comeback. We'll get started on that. I'm not <laughs> I'm not big on vampires. Uh, never have been, never will be. So. Well, there are also other type of immortal beings in this. So if vampires aren't your thing, don't worry. They're not the only thing in this. Well, like, my dilemma is I grew up and I took a lot of film classes on the history of film. Like Nosferatu and mm-hmm. Bram Stoker's. That was Stoker's. also a book first. That yeah. was also a book first. But those vampires were... Like what you grew up on? What I grew up watching. So, like, I grew up watching Buffy, so there's that. Yeah, so you, you're going from like the kind of vampires that will literally give you nightmares to the sparkly, wearing a lot of makeup No vampires. one wants sparkly vampires. Yeah. All right. That was an age that I'm glad it's ended. But these vampires should scare you. The vampires in this are scary. I think you just also have a side where they're appealing to their own humanity. And they don't want to be monsters, but they are monsters. That sort of thing. So you have this duality of vampire instead of duality of man. But you have this duality where they don't want to be monsters, but they are monsters and sort of fighting that in themselves. And not everyone in the story is a vampire. You only have a handful of vampires in this. You also have a handful of werewolves and fae and beings with earth magic and stuff like that. So you have a bunch of different types. But I am excited for the next one. There's nothing really in the works on it right now, which is disappointing because it's been less than a year since the first one came out, which is very fast for the second book to come out. So I'm a little worried the third isn't going to come out for a long time. We're going to have to wait and see. I think that's the worst part about being in a series of either books, shows, when you get that it's over for now feeling and you're like, I need the next thing and you can't get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with movies, like we watched The Old Guard and I immediately wanted more. Yeah. And that's why the comics are currently ordered ordered and waiting. So it's... It's a little disappointing not to know, but at the same time, I'd rather them take the time and work through some of the issues I had with the first two. Right. But up next, I'm going to be reading Prisoner of Azkaban. I technically started it yesterday. I'm a quarter of the way through. And then uh, Goblet of Fire for me. Yeah, you're going to be reading Goblet of Fire after we do the movie for Prisoner of Azkaban. And then I'm going to start Network Effect by Martha Wells. And it's the first full-length novel in the Murderbot Diaries. It's apparently a jumping-off point for a new story arc. So, like, the first four novellas are all this one story arc, and then this is going to be a new thing. And I'm excited. I'm also nervous to read it because the next one is coming out next year, but they don't know when. So I'm going to be holding on for, like, a year again. But... Again, we do have the giveaway happening starting on Saturday and ending a week from Saturday. So make sure you check out all of the social media feeds and all of the different posts we're going to have about it. Yeah, we're really excited to not only hopefully grow our following a little bit more, but also in turn kind of pay it forward back to you guys with some cool stickers. And I'll have a photo of those up whenever we do the announcement. So that'll be on August 1st, and the winner will be announced on the 8th. But uh, I think that's pretty much all we got for you guys again today. So we appreciate you listening in, and uh, have a great week. We'll hear you next time. Bye, guys. Bye!